Today's parable is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, a fairly well-known parable. Um, a lot of times it's included on parables about prayer. Um, there's a few parables that are at least on the surface about prayer, but I don't think they're really teaching us how to pray or teaching us how prayer works. Uh, in fact, I would say that this parable answers this question. What kind of heart moves the heart of God? What kind of heart moves the heart of God? One of the struggles when we read parables is that we know too much. Never, well, it can be a bad thing to know too much, but uh, uh, most of us don't have to worry about knowing too much, I think. But uh, uh, we sort of know the punchline already, and we're you know 2,000 years removed from the cultural context, and the parables, for the most part, have lost their shock value when we, when we read them. But when Jesus' first century audience would have heard these parables, the shock value would have been great. And I've tried to recreate that shock value. It's difficult without getting, like the easiest way to do it would be to dig into politics. I don't want to do that. Um, but let me throw this out at you. This summer I attempted to write a little parable to recreate shock value, and it's not very good because I'm not like a creative writer. But if I threw two names out at you, some of you will know these names. Tim Tebow, Colin Kaepernick. Okay? For those of you who don't know, they're both football players. Um, but Tim Tebow has endeared himself to the conservative um, side of things. He is an outspoken Christian. He speaks boldly and publicly about uh, pro-life, about a lot of issues that are near and dear to the heart of conservative Christians. Um, Colin Kaepernick is not known for anything religious, but he's known for being the first, I think he's the first, um, professional football player to kneel during the national anthem as a way to protest police violence against blacks in America. Um, he doesn't have a lot of fans on the same side that Tim Tebow has. There probably aren't too many people who love them both. Um, so in a conservative, Christian, evangelical setting, to mention both of those names, if I told you I was going to tell you a story about Tim Tebow and Colin Kaepernick, you would right away if you were part of that culture, and if you kind of understand a little bit, even a little more than I've explained, you would understand right away who the hero's going to be. The hero of that story, in our context, would be Tim Tebow, obviously. So here's my attempt at a kind of lame story. Two men were walking down a busy New York City street. One man, Tim Tebow, was well-known for talking a lot about God and Jesus in public, and he was a really good quarterback. He has preached in the Philippines. He's helped build a hospital in the Philippines. He also raised money for a cancer center in, uh, in Florida, I believe in his hometown. Uh, in fact, due to his philanthropy in Florida, the governor of Florida designated Tim Tebow as a great Floridian. He's, an outs he's outspoken in support of abstinence and has maintained his sexual purity. Um, he's getting married soon, but uh, um, he's been outspoken 
about that, very, very public with, with that commitment that he's made. He's now engaged to a South African model, the former Miss Universe 2017. The other man, Colin Kaepernick, uh, was well known, like I said, for kneeling during the national anthem before football games to protest police violence. Um, he was a really good quarterback for a year or two, led the uh, San Francisco 49ers to the Super Bowl and played really well in the Super Bowl. He's received some different awards. In 2017, he received the ACLU's Eason Monroe Courageous Advocate Award. So Tim and Colin had just finished being interviewed by two other by two news programs. Uh, Tim was being inter interviewed by Fox News, which makes sense, and Colin by a CNN, which maybe makes sense too. Following these interviews, they both exited their respective buildings, which happened to be next to each other, and they both headed to Starbucks, just minutes apart. Along the way, Tim passed by a homeless man, half-heartedly begging for a handout. As Tim passed by, he said a little prayer like this, Thank you, God, that I've never been homeless. I'm grateful that my hard work and godly character have played dividends both on and off the field. Thank you for my Heisman Trophy and that I'm dating Miss Universe 2017. <laughs> Colin passed by the same man a few minutes later. The man looked vaguely familiar to a man he had seen in an old photo. Colin then remembered how his dad had run out on his family and how his mom had to give him up for adoption. He felt a sudden strange sorrow and gave the man some money and prayed a prayer like this. Thank you, God, that a wonderful family showed me compassion when my dad left. My mom couldn't take care of me. Help this man and help me. The story I just told is about 90% 90, 90 pure fabrication, which for an illust sermon illustration makes it mostly true. <laughs> uh, the biographical details are true, but the entire plot was a product of my weak imagination. In fact, the story, in terms of parables, maybe more closely resembles the parable of the Good Samaritan than it does the parable of the rich man and the tax collector. But I wanted to tell the story for one reason, just so that you could maybe experience a little bit of that shock value, where the person who's obviously the hero, no doubt about it, 100%, he's the guy we love, he's the guy we follow, turns out not to be the hero, but the one who's maybe a little more scandalous maybe the one who's not welcome in places like this, not meaning this church, just in general. Um, when he turns out to be a hero, it's shocking. It's interesting that in other churches, I would have to reverse that story. In some churches, Colin Kaepernick would be the obvious hero, and Tim Tebow would not. Now, how did you feel when Colin becomes the hero of the story, when he's the example we're supposed to follow. In this culture, Tim's obviously the hero, the example, but my story messed that up. <coughs> and the point is simply this, parables were shocking. The stories Jesus told always had a twist that would have alarmed maybe even confused his audience. And no parable illustrates this better than the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Again, we're in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Let me read it for you. 
Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The tax collector, however, stood far off. It would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So to better understand what's going on in this story, I want to take a closer look. And I'm doing this, um, I've organized this story this way. There are two people, two postures, two prayers, and two appraisals. Two, that way you know when I'm almost done. Two prayers, or two people, two prayers, sorry. Two people, two postures, two prayers, and two appraisals. The first character in this scene is the Pharisee. We don't know exactly when the Pharisees rose. They're not in the Old Testament, but by the time Jesus is around, they're pretty active and influential. But the two primary characteristics of the Pharisees were this. One, they were considered to be the most, in, the most accurate interpreters of the law. They were accurate interpreters of the law. And second, they were influential among the common people, among the working class, among the masses. Regarding the law, the Pharisees were deeply devoted to their Bible. They wanted to help the common people avoid violating it. So in doing this, they were said to have built a hedge or a fence around the law so that ordinary, everyday Jewish men and women couldn't even come close to, bre to breaking it. So among the masses, they had high status. They were respected. They were leaders. They were educated. And they were honored. So we struggle when we read this because we know about the Pharisees. We know the end of the story. We know how Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees was one of the many uh, reasons uh, of opposition to, to Jesus. Um, but they weren't bad guys to the common people. Like I said, they were the heroes. They were the leaders. They were examples to be followed. So let me put this in other terms. Pharisees had serious public influence. They were serious about the Bible. They were serious students of the Bible. And they cared about helping others do what the Bible said they should do. So what group today would be like the Pharisees in that context. Evangelical Christians. Tim Tebow. Just think about that for a while. The second character we meet is the tax collector. It's really hard to find a contemporary parallel to the first century Jewish tax collector. You see, tax collectors weren't just carrying out a task that no one wanted to do and that no one wanted to be done to them, 
I suppose tax collectors have never been popular. But there's more to it than just that. First century Jewish tax collectors were traitors. If you read through, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that one group of folks who attract Jesus' compassion, but the Pharisees' ire, is this group, tax collectors and sinners. Remember, that's the group that Jesus is, they're always the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the, the Jewish religious leaders are always asking, why is he hanging out with those tax collectors and sinners? Why is he having a meal with those tax collectors and sinners? This term sinners usually denotes prostitutes. So first century tax collectors were in the same social layer as first century prostitutes. Why? So when Rome came to occupy Israel, they, for the most part, let the Jews practice their religion, but this came at a cost, and that cost was a tax paid to Rome. So in order to get the Jews to pay up, they recruited Jewish men to do this collecting. It appears that they divided up the land into regions, and they took bids from prospective tax collectors. But you need to understand this also. These tax collectors didn't have a salary. They weren't paid by the hour. They were paid by collecting more than was due. They were traders who sold out their own people for profit. What modern day person or group is like this? Uh, you know, people might think Colin Kaepernick has sold out his country. Uh, because he kneels during the national anthem. But I don't think that really gets us to the disdain and disgust that the Jews had for tax collectors. So imagine, if you can, um, in America, where some kind of oppressive foreign nation has taken control, and he's recruited some of your own friends and neighbors to extract taxes from you. And this not under the threat of violence to them, but due to their own greed. So think about that. It's hard to imagine. But what you must understand is that in any story in the first century about a Pharisee and a tax collector, the Pharisee will be the hero. This is obvious to the people. The Pharisee will be the hero. The tax collector will be the villain. Unless, of course, Jesus is telling that story. So those are our two people. Now let's take a look at two postures. The Pharisee goes up to the temple. This is probably at a time of sacrifice, which took place several times a day. And there's nothing surprising about this. We would expect nothing less from the Pharisee. Notice also that the Pharisee stands by himself. The translation here is difficult. Some of your versions might say that he prayed to himself or he prayed about himself. But it's more likely that he stood by himself. I think he stood alone because he didn't want anyone unclean to touch him. I mean, that's what the Pharisee was all about. He was all about following the rules. And if he goes to worship at the temple to make a sacrifice and someone unclean touches him, then he becomes unclean. But we don't know. We do know that he's standing by himself. I think he's being careful, very careful, which is consistent with his commitment and devotion to the law. 
We're not told that he looked up to heaven when he prayed, but we're told that the tax collector didn't. So I can assume safely that the Pharisee looks to heaven. So he's standing alone, lest he be tainted by anyone. He's looking to heaven. And this was a common practice, this posture, looking to heaven while praying. It's not um, presumptuous or anything. Um, It was a common posture of prayer. But I can't help but think that he assumed this position, standing apart from the less committed, head toward heaven, with great confidence that he was in the right. The tax collector also goes up to the temple. Now, can you imagine what this would be like? He's still Jewish. Even though his people consider him a traitor, and lump him in with other notorious sinners, but he still has to go. He has to go where everyone knows his name, but no one's glad he came. Did you catch that reference to Cheers? (laughs) Everyone knows him, but no one is glad he's there. He stands far off, not to keep himself clean like the Pharisee, but I think he stands far off because of his shame before his neighbors and before his God. He's far removed from his people, and he's far removed from the God of his people. And when he prays, he can't look up, but instead pounds his chest. The beating of the breast was a physical manifestation of grief usually reserved for women. I forget this is a parable. One of the dangers in studying parables is to over-interpret. There's usually just two or three main points in a parable. This reads so realistically, though. I want to know. I want to know what happened to this tax collector. What led to this outpouring of emotion by him? Was he suddenly remorseful for betraying his people and for loving money? more than God and his neighbor. Something pushed him over the edge. But again, this is a parable, and we shouldn't focus too much on these intricate details, but it's hard not to, because this one seems so realistic. So two people and two postures. Thirdly, two prayers. I've already mentioned that the prayers were probably made at the time of sacrifice. Remember that the idea of animal sacrifice is that the animal represents the human transgressor. So as the animal's being killed, the sinner is identifying with the death of that animal in the sinner's place. So in light of that, listen to the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers. The New Revised Standard Version says rogues. I like that or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. What did he thank God for? What did God do for the Pharisee? Given the content of this prayer, it seems like maybe God should be thanking him instead. I mean, after all, he fasts twice a week when the Old Testament only requires him to do so once a year. He's fasting twice a week. He only had to fast once a year. 
he tithed on everything. But he only had to tithe on his grain, his oil, and his wine. We might think he's lying about all this. Is his prayer hypocritical in that sense, that he's saying that he's done all this stuff when he really hasn't? I don't think so. I think the Pharisee isn't, uh, it really isn't an extortionist or an adulterer, and he's certainly not a tax collector. I think his prayer, from one angle, tells the truth. So we have to ask, what has he missed? And we'll answer that in a little bit. The tax collector also prays, perhaps watching the death of an animal sacrifice, sacrifice on his behalf, and says this, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. I made a note to myself to look this up. Is this the shortest prayer in the Bible? I don't know. It's got to be close. God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. Standing far off, looking down, beating his breast, the tax collector cries out in desperation. Maybe he realizes that his future is the same as the animal that he's watching if something doesn't change. I don't know. What we do know is that he asks God for mercy and confesses that he is a sinner. Notice, too, and, and this, this is important, and I, I love these little details, Notice, too, he doesn't confess his sins. He's not asking for mercy for the sins that he has done, but for the sinner that he is. Maybe he's tired of being an outcast whose social and religious status are lumped together with prostitutes and other notorious sinners. So why is this prayer honored? Why is this prayer answered? And we'll get to that in just a little bit. So two people, two postures, two prayers, and now we find two appraisals. It doesn't start with P, but it's really close. So just pretend. Two appraisals. One of the many interesting details of this parable is there's no character that represents God. In other parables, you have a judge or a shepherd or a landowner, a father, characters like that that represent God. In this parable, Jesus takes on that role. He enters the parable to announce the judgment. I wonder, this is more of an aside, could this be a claim by Jesus of his equality with God? I mean, elsewhere, Jesus says he forgives sins, which riles up the Pharisees and teachers of the law because they understand that in proclaiming to forgive sins, he's making himself equal with God. But notice in this parable, it's not a character in the story who's passing judgment. It's Jesus himself. But I don't think that's the point of the parable, so we'll move on. The point is, though, that Jesus appraises the hearts of these two men in response to their respective prayers. First, Jesus says that the tax collector went down justified. Second, he says that the Pharisee does not. I think the word justified here simply means that he was made right with God. The tax collector walks away with a right relationship with God. The Pharisee does not. 
If the tax collector was identifying with the sacrifice being made, then Jesus says that in response to that and to his request for mercy, the tax collector got what he asked for. We want to know more, don't we? Again, I forget this is a parable, and I get concerned. This really distresses me. No one tells the tax collector that he goes away justified. But it's a parable. I'm glad it's a parable. Because I want someone to let him know. Let him know that he's, he's got what he asks for. He's received mercy. His prayer is honored. And so is the Pharisees. You might be surprised I just said that, that the Pharisees' prayer is honored. Surely God answers the tax collector's prayer and not the Pharisees, right? I'll say he answers both, or he honors both. Because do you remember what the Pharisee prayed for? Do you remember what he asked for? You don't remember what he asked for, because he didn't ask for anything. Nothing. You have not because you ask not. The Pharisee went up with self-confidence and he went down with the same. The Pharisee doesn't get punished, or does he? He just gets what he wants. He wants nothing. He gets nothing. There's no mention of him uh, here of being, you know, cast into eternal hellfire. He gets to go on. He gets to leave. He goes on. He, he'll continue to be better than other people. He'll continue to fast and to give and to pray and to not be the tax collector. But the Pharisee doesn't go down justified because he sees no need to be justified. And his punishment is that he gets exactly what he wants. The tax collector needs much, but all he knows is that he needs mercy. So he asks for it. He receives it, and he walks away justified. What does this mean for us? At least two things, but before we get there, let me just summarize what we've said so far. And I want to summarize by talking about the three hearts in this parable. First of all, there's the heart of the Pharisee. The Pharisee follows all the rules and then some. He really does. He's not a hypocrite in that sense, like he's following the rules in public, but is, you know, in his private life, he really is like eating pork and shrimp skewers or something like that. <laughs> he's really following these rules, sincerely, faithfully. And not only does he follow the rules, but he also cares about his people following the rules of being faithful to God's covenant. His heart is committed and competent, but it's also calloused. Why? I asked the question earlier about what the Pharisee missed in all of this, <clears throat> and I'll answer that now. The Pharisee has followed the rules, but has failed to love his neighbor, which was a rule too, so I guess he didn't follow all the rules. But he failed to love his neighbor. I'm going to practice a little bit of conjecture here. The Pharisee knows the law, he knows, the, he knows his Bible, 
He knows that he's supposed to love God, which he thinks he does by following the rules, and that he is also supposed to love his neighbor. He's a student of scripture. He knows this. His problem is that he has too narrowly defined neighbor. Do you remember the question that precipitated the parable of the Good Samaritan? The question was, who is my neighbor? The self-confident, self-righteous heart believes that it gets to define who his or her neighbors are. And the neighbors they love tend to look, act, and believe just like they do. All the Pharisee needed to do was pray upon seeing the tax collector standing far off, something like this. I have done all these things well. All of this is true of me, God, but I despise the tax collector. Help me to love him. So that's the heart of the Pharisee. Second, the heart of the tax collector. It's full of sorrow and grief, and we don't know why. We can imagine that the pervasive ridicule he received and shame he felt has much to do with it. What leaves an impression on me when I consider the heart of the tax collector is that he brings nothing to the table. No resume, no promises, no list of accomplishments. Simply his confession. And remember, there's no confession here of sins that he has done. Just an admission that a sinner is who he is. He knows he needs atonement. He needs God's mercy to somehow connect him to this sacrifice he's witnessing. You know, we're hard on the Pharisee for not loving his neighbor. But we should remember that the tax collector is not loving his neighbor either. In fact, he's cheating his neighbor. The tax collector's heart, when compared to the Pharisee, tells me this, that it can be more dangerous to be half right than to be all wrong. You see, the Pharisee's half right, sort of. The tax collector's all wrong. But one is closer to justification than the other. Finally, let's look at the heart of the justifier, an often ignored character in this parable. What do we learn about the heart of God from this parable? This parable is what's said to be a two-point parable, and the heart of God reveals these two points. First, God will humble those who exalt themselves. I've ignored the audience of this parable so far, so let's take a look. In verse 9, Jesus, or it's, we're told that Jesus tells this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. That's his audience. This is not the kind of heart that moves the heart of God. This is the kind of heart that will be humbled. When we think of God humbling those who exalt themselves, we might think in terms of eternal eternal punishment, hell, separation from God, those sorts of things, as the means to humble these proud hearts. And I don't know. I don't know whether in hell pride ceases or if it intensifies. But I don't think we need to go that far in thinking about how the proud are humbled. Because of this, God is gracious and he loves the proud. He loves the proud as much as he loves anyone else. In fact, we have an example in the Bible of God humbling a Pharisee. 
Can you think of a Pharisee in the New Testament that was humbled? That humbled Pharisee ended up writing most of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul. I think, too, of Jesus' statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Who then can be saved is the question. Jesus replies, with man this is not possible, but with God all things are possible. The point is simply this. The proud might need more help threading the needle, but with God even that is possible. The second point of this parable reveals the heart of God and his desire to exalt those who humble themselves. This doesn't mean that we impress God through our humility. And doing that, we would become more like the Pharisee. Rather, humbling yourself is simply the proper posture to take before God. When you realize that you stand before God, that when you stand before God, you stand alone with no one other than God himself to which to compare yourself. From that perspective, the only proper stance is the stance of humility, and the only proper prayer is a prayer for mercy. I believe that it's the tax collector who found out that God heard his prayer and answered it. I'm sorry, I believe that if the tax collector found out that God has, had heard his prayer and had answered it, he would have been surprised. He would have been shocked. But it shouldn't be news to us that God exalts the humble. It's not only in his heart to do this, it is his heart to do this. He did it with his own son. Does this sound familiar? Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will humble those who exalt themselves, but he will exalt those who are humble. The application of this parable is fairly straightforward. First of all, everyone needs the mercy of God. The Pharisee, the tax collector, and everyone in between. Everyone needs the mercy of God. Second, no one is beyond the mercy of God. If you think you're beyond God's mercy, you might be closer to it than you realize. I want to extend this parable just a bit. I want you to imagine what could have happened. Think of the tax collector who, by confessing that he's a sinner, is saying to God, everyone's right about me. You see, he enters into this arena where, like I said, everyone knows his name, but he's not welcome. 
because they know who he is and they know what he's done. And his prayer could be restated this way. Everyone is right about me. All the rumors, the whispers, the taunts, they're all true. Some of us have been in this position and maybe are now. We wear our shame and our sin for all to see, maybe by our scars, if not by our reputation. Everyone knows what we've done, the sins we've committed. And you know, like the Pharisee, that you are that you are a sinner, that what people are saying about you and thinking about you is true. But there may be others who are like the Pharisee. There are no scars, no physical or outward signs that anything is wrong. The reputation is pristine and pure. Lesser people look up to you to model your integrity, your faithfulness. And when you stand before God alone, you can pray like the Pharisee, summarizing your credentials and thanking God that you are not like these these others. You are a leader, but you know that they are all wrong. While the Pharisee prays, everyone is right about me, he needs to be praying, everyone is wrong about me. I'm not to be looked up to. I'm not who people think I am. My good works, devotion, and faithfulness to Torah cannot disguise my heart hardened to God and to those not like me. I have only loved my neighbor when they are mirror images of me. Have mercy on me, sinner that I am. So no one is beyond the mercy of God. And finally, this is sort of a, I didn't come up with this. Um, I listened to a lecture on this parable from a New Testament scholar who pointed this out. There's sort of a trick going on in this parable. Because when we read this parable, we know not to be like the Pharisee. There's a temptation for us to, at the end of things, say, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Right? But do you see what that does? So if you're sitting there thanking God that you're not like the Pharisee, you've just become the Pharisee. Isn't that amazing? So don't become like the Pharisee by thanking God you're not like the Pharisee. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, thank you for justifying the heart of those who are humbled by their sinfulness. Please keep us from making it more complicated than it is. Help us also to rejoice in your forgiveness for making us new, but in thanking you for what we are now, let us never forget what we once were. Father, you loved us even then and are calling us to love those who are there now. May we love them deeply, sincerely, because you have loved us. Lord, and we're all in desperate need of your grace and of your power to do what you've called us to do. Thank you for your promise to give it to us abundantly. We give you the glory for what you are doing and for what you will continue doing among us. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know your mercy, show them that they are not beyond the mercy that they need. They simply need to turn and follow Jesus, the one who gave his life to secure this mercy and now gives it freely to those who ask. 
and in whose name we ask all of this. Amen.